This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, I, I have the, uh, the privilege this morning of introducing Matt. In uh, 2012, my wife Lauren and I uh, were preparing to move to Louisville, Kentucky, so I could attend seminary. And, and the first church that, that we attended was Third Avenue Baptist Church. Uh, it was a church that came recommended to us. We didn't know much about it, but a couple we had great respect for told us about this church. And on our first visit, uh, we were warmly welcomed. We, we sat down, and a couple in front of us began to interact with us, draw us out, got our contact information, heard that we were moving to the city. And then what followed was email after email from this church and members that I hadn't even met that Sunday who were reaching out to Lauren and I, letting us know where we should live, letting us know more about the city, answering questions that, uh, that we had. And, and, all it, and it just began with sitting in this church and them getting to know us, and then they just treated us like one of their own. And so, so I tell you this because this is the church that, that Matt has attended for 10-plus years and now serves as a, a lay elder. And, and so this is a church that I, I have great respect for. Uh, that I have been greatly served by personally. I, I tell folks that um, if Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville had not been planted, we would have attended this church just because how well we were cared for. So it's a privilege to welcome Matt. We invited Matt down because he came highly recommended to us, and he has served us well this weekend. He, uh, Zach has already invited him to come back, and so he's like, hey, come back and help us some more. And he has served us as a pastoral team, uh, Matt, he, he works for the Gospel Coalition as a managing editor and has a heart for the gospel to be reached to all people. But what he made clear to me is that he's most passionate about the local church. He wants to proclaim God's word to God's people. So, so just hearing his heart made me all the more excited for him to come and to preach God's word to us this morning. So please welcome Matt as he comes to preach God's word to us. Thank you, Jake. Uh, it is such a joy and honor to be here this morning. Um, it's my first time here at Cornerstone. I've heard great things about this church from afar, and uh, it's just, it's so fun to be here this morning. The only, the only thing that I think could have made the service better so far is if Jake, when he was up here with Ellen, could have done some limbo. Because on Thursday night, I witnessed Jake doing limbo, and out of about 100 students at VFC, he came in third. It was incredible. And the guy who got second, I don't know if he's here, but he was like 6'6". It was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Uh, but seriously, it is so um, such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, and uh, I pray that this morning will be a blessing uh, to you just as it has been to me. Um, I've enjoyed getting to know several of your pastors over the last couple days through meals, and uh, they have just ministered to me, and it's evident to me that you are in very good hands. So don't take for granted uh, the shepherds that the Lord has entrusted um, over your life here in this church. Well, have you ever uh, had a painful experience, like a really painful experience that you ended up forgetting about, that, that you could no longer remember until someone reminded you. My parents tell me that when I walked through the front door after my first day of sixth grade, I broke down weeping. 
I was so intimidated by sixth grade. I think it was the, the first year that uh, I was moving from class to class, teacher to teacher. It was the first time I had ever uh, been given a syllabus, and I was just utterly overwhelmed. I did not think I could survive sixth grade. I didn't think it, it was possible. And yet the thing that was so all-encompassing, all-consuming for me then I can't even remember now. We're going to be thinking this morning about, about this piece of the human experience on a far grander scale. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4. If you don't have one, um, I think you can raise your hand and ushers will, will bring you one. But let, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is the Apostle Paul's second inspired letter to the church in the city of Corinth. Whereas 1 Corinthians calls the congregation to be united with each other, 2 Corinthians calls the congregation to be unified with Paul. His opponents in 2 Corinthians are seeking to invalidate him, claiming that his suffering proves that he's not a real apostle. He's not the real thing. But he responds kind of counterintuitively by, by showing them that far from invalidating his ministry, his gospel and his afflictions legitimize it. Friend, if you want a crash course in the life and experiences of Paul through his own eyes, read 2 Corinthians this week. It's the most transparent and autobiographical of all of his letters. So let's read chapter 4 together starting in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but rather by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, 
and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There are three things that arise out of this passage that I want to think about with you this morning. First, a shining light. We're going to see that in verses 1 to 6. Second, a surpassing power. That's verses 7 to 12. And third, a staggering future. A shining light, a surpassing power, and a staggering future. First, and we'll spend uh, a little more time on, on the first one than the other two, the, a shining light. Did, did you catch the phrase that brackets, as we were reading, did you catch the phrase that brackets the whole chapter? It's like a frame on a picture. Look again at verse one. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, what? We do not lose heart. And then again, that phrase is echoed in verse 16. So, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Well, why? Why does Paul say this? And why can Paul say this with such confidence? This is not a a tentative wish. This is a declaration. We do not lose heart. How in the world can he have this kind of confidence? Well, according to verse 1, it's because of two things. Two things in verse 1. The nature and the source of our ministry as Christians. As the previous chapter, 2 Corinthians 3, makes clear, its nature, the nature of this ministry is new covenant. It's new covenant ministry, not a ministry of condemnation and death grounded in the law, but a ministry of righteousness and life grounded in grace. And the source, so that's the nature of it, new covenant ministry, the source of the ministry is right there in the middle of verse one. One of those phrases that is so easy to just have your eyes glaze over when you're reading the Bible, the mercy of God, there's the source. A little phrase that, that as I said, is easy to rush past, but, but I wonder if Paul's eyes didn't well up with tears as he wrote out those words, by the mercy of God. As a former religious terrorist against Christians, against gospel people, he knew he had been the least likely candidate in the entire Roman Empire to inherit a ministry of new covenant gospel grace. Look at verse 2. But, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. In other words, Paul is saying Christians, true Christians, 
are not tricksters. We're not manipulators. And when it comes to this book, when it comes to this book, we are not editors. Oh, friends, do not approach your Bible this week as if it's a rough draft. It's not. Now, let's be honest, though. We, we can read a verse like verse 2, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, and we can get really excited, can't we? We can read a verse like this about tampering with the Word of God and immediately start confessing the sins of others. Yes, this is about Mormons. This is about Jehovah's Witnesses. This is about false teachers disguised as Christian authors. And we can feel valiant. But what about us? This verse is meant to first and foremost be a mirror. What about us? What about you? Do you ever tamper with God's Word? Maybe not in a Thomas Jefferson, literally get out the scissors kind of way, but, but subtly. Are you selective about the parts of the Bible you give attention to? Do you only tend to read what's familiar or easy to understand? Are you tempted to only praise God for or, or even only obey those things in this book that fit with your preferences? Look, here's the scary thing. Anyone can submit to what they want to hear. Anyone can submit their life to what they want to hear. It doesn't take a Christian to do that. Don't tamper in any way with the words of God. So if Paul and his team aren't tampering with it, well, then what are they doing? That's the rest of verse 2. But rather, he says, by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. They're stating it openly. They're, they're not trafficking in the world of ambiguous musings about spirituality. And by the way, that is what every unbeliever in this city and on UT's campus wants you to do. They are happy for you to be a spiritual muse, to, to, to just be spiritual and to, and to uh, share some, some thoughts, to make suggestions and to pontificate as long as you remain muted, as long as you remain ambiguous, as long as you're kept in check. But no, Paul has no patience for ambiguous musings about spirituality. As he'll say in verse 5, we proclaim Christ, not we suggest him, not we trot him out as one option on the buffet. No, we proclaim Christ with declarative authority, not just suggest him like he's a new restaurant to try out. Verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, Paul says, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Do you see the contrast there between verse 2 and verse 3? Verse 2, what's going on with the truth? It's being stated openly. Verse 3, the truth is hidden. Stated openly, hidden. Paul wants to make very clear here that its hiddenness is not due to our proclamation. He's saying, hey, 
just because the gospel is veiled doesn't mean I'm invalidated as an apostle. The, 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 the fact that the gospel is veiled doesn't say so much about our proclamation as it does about the condition of its hearers, of those who reject it. And then he elaborates in verses 4 to 6, which I think are three of the most significant verses in all the Bible. Verse 4, in their case, the God of this world, lowercase g, that's referring to the devil, to Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. There's another parallel here that's important to see. The unbelievers here in verse 4 are the same as the perishing in verse 3. And just note that parallel, that connection that Paul makes almost in passing between belief and eternal destiny. Belief in eternal destiny. If you are an unbeliever, then you are on the path of perishing eternally. If you're not relying on Jesus, in other words, your creator counts you among the group over whom there's a banner that flies and it reads, perishing. Well, what is the devil's intent? What is the God of this world's intent? It says here, to keep people from what? Seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. I'm just going to be honest and blunt with you. Satan hates you. He hates you. He's real, he's powerful, and he wants to neutralize you. He wants to take you out. His goal actually isn't to make you become an ardent, outspoken atheist. His goal is to make you become a bored Christian, so, someone who professes to follow Christ and yawns in his face. And Satan has a ministry. According to this passage, Satan has a, a, a kind of ministry, and it's called a blind, it's a blinding ministry. He's laser-focused on shielding you not just your unbelieving neighbor or family member. He wants to, to shield you this morning even from glimpsing spiritual light. Now, this light that Satan's desperate to block, where is it streaming through? It's streaming. The light is streaming through the gospel of the glory of Christ. And that is why Satan today, this morning, is scrambling to reinforce blindness in this room because we are proclaiming the one who will crush his head. He knows it's not mainly the Apostle Paul or Pastor Bill or me or you that he has to discredit. It's Jesus of Nazareth. As Paul wrote previously to this same church, the message of the cross, which we're proclaiming, is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's what the devil is up to in your life and in the lives of those you love. He wants to make Jesus look ludicrous to you or his more common tactic in the American South to make Jesus look boring, to make him look boring, to cause you to yawn with indifference, not to reject him, but to yawn. It's also important to see what Paul's proclaiming about Jesus. He's not, he's not lifting up a generic Jesus. Look at verse 5. We proclaim Jesus as something, 
as Lord. Some of you may have heard that it's possible to have Jesus as your Savior, but not your Lord. Maybe you are here this morning and you would even say, yeah, yeah, that's me. I, I, remember, I remember when the transaction happened. I prayed a prayer, and ever since I've been good with God, I know I'm saved. Uh, you guys know I'm, I live in Louisville, Kentucky now, but I'm originally from Virginia. And whenever our family drives back to Virginia, we have to pass through a couple of pay tolls on the highway in West Virginia. Those of you who have had that experience, is that experience, is, is passing through a highway toll a relationally meaningful experience <laughs> with the person in the, in, in the toll booth? Of course it's not. It's laughable to think it is. And yet, that's how we often treat becoming a Christian and living as a Christian. It's just kind of a business transaction. You do your part, he does his. You pay the ticket, you know, you give him a prayer, you give him a, a set of good deeds, you give him a church attendance record, and he raises the bar. But friend, I'm here to tell you this morning, and all the pastors of this church would agree, that if that's what you think, then you need to get to know Christianity because that's not it. Becoming a Christian and living a Christian is not like that. It's not a business transaction. It's an intensely personal union. It's more like a marriage it's more like a marriage. You, you give yourself to Jesus. You throw yourself on him for mercy, and he catches you, and he never lets go. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of parallels here. So again, darkness here in verse 6 is parallel to blindness. It matches blindness in verse 4. Paul, Paul is saying, listen here, this is, we, we actually sang about it, uh, and I don't know if that was intentional on the part of the music team who, or whoever um, comes up with the songs, but thank you for that because that's exactly what's going on in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul is saying, just as God spoke light in Genesis 1 into the darkness over the waters, so he speaks light now, today, into pitch black hearts. If you love Jesus this morning, if you this morning find yourself seeing Jesus with the eyes of faith and not seeing folly, seeing him hanging on the cross and what you don't see is folly, what you see is beauty, then this same miracle that happened on the first page of your Bible has happened in your heart. The same thing that God accomplished back in the very beginning, he has accomplished in you. Notice also in verse 6 what Paul doesn't say. It's a little trick for reading your Bible. One of the best ways to figure out what it does say and what it does mean is to first notice sometimes what it doesn't say. Maybe it's what we would expect it to say. Paul does not say in verse 6, God shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the truth of God in Christ. Of course, that's true. That happened but that's not what it says. It says not just that God gives the light of the knowledge of the truth of God in Christ, but the glory of God in Christ. See, when unbelievers are blind, and that is some of you this morning, some of you are unbelievers. You're blind. You're perishing. 
I'm not only referring to those of you who say you're unbelievers, who think of yourselves as unbelievers. My prayer is that there will be some of you who walked in this morning thinking you were good with God, thinking that the highway business transaction had occurred, thinking that everything was just fine between you and him. You thought you were a Christian, but 2 Corinthians 4 is suggesting otherwise. And you're going to reevaluate whether you need to do business with God for the first time and to turn away from your sin and to trust in him, to throw yourself on him for mercy. Unbelievers are blind, but that doesn't mean they can't know any truth about the gospel. Some of you this morning who may not be Christians know a lot about the gospel. You know a lot of facts about the gospel, but you can't see glory in it. Listen, the devil himself knows the facts of the gospel cold, but he hates what he knows. And one of the things he knows is that as soon as a human heart sees glory, starts to see glory streaming through the gospel, the the message of what Jesus has done for us, that he's lived the life we should have lived, he's died the death we deserve to die, that he's risen again in triumph so that anyone who trusts in him will rise right along with him. The devil knows that as soon as a human heart starts to see glory in that little message, glory streaming through that gospel, that person is a lost cause to him. They are on their way to Jesus. Listen, a lot of people have this idea, and one of the things I love about Cornerstone is that, is that you celebrate a big God. You make much of the power and the sovereignty of God. And some of you who may be visiting the church or maybe even members of the church are still wrestling through these things. And one of the most common misperceptions, especially those of you who are UT students, many of your uh, classmates and hallmates and sweetmates on campus have this misconception about God, particularly a a sovereign God. This idea that God drags people kicking and screaming against their will. That is not what the Bible means when it talks about God being in the driver's seat of the universe. He's not dragging anyone backward by by the back of their shirt, kicking and screaming against their will. The picture the Bible paints isn't like that at all. It's more like this. Imagine if humanity were were just kind of all running in a great big mass toward, uh, toward hell, but they think they're running toward the beach. They don't know they're running toward hell. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They think they're going to the beach. And Christians are those God has plucked out and are, in a sense, on the sideline, witnessing, yelling out, stop, we love you, turn around. The response is, be quiet, religious fanatics. We're having the time of our lives. We're following our heart. We're going to the beach. We can even feel it getting warmer now. Now, how is someone in that mass of rebellious humanity running headlong toward the lake of fire, how are they saved? Is it that a Christian or God's omnipotent arm just comes down and sort of drags them backwards? No, God just removes the blindfold. 
God just removes the blindfold so that they can actually see reality for the first time for what it really is. And then they willingly, willingly, gladly, joyfully turn around and run in the opposite direction. Brothers and sisters, it's not the best news I have to share this morning because the best news is the gospel, but this may be the second best news, and that's that you and I are not in the blinder lifting business. Our job is not to lift and remove blinders. Can you imagine how stressful and exhausting the Christian life would be if other people's eternal destiny resided on your shoulders and it was up to you to remove the blinders even the uh, even against their will no our job is just to hold out the lord jesus and god's job is to lift the blinders our job is to speak to the casket to speak to the casket god's job is to crack it open and i'm praying that would happen in this room this morning this morning that the creator of heaven and earth would send a blaze of light into a dark and deadened heart. I pray uh, that if, if one of you isn't yet a Christian, as I said earlier, even if you think you are, if one of you has never repented and believed in Jesus, bowed your knee to King Jesus, that you would all of a sudden see the beauty, the glory, not just the facts, the beauty and the glory of who he is and what he's done, and that you would reverse course and run into his arms with joy. A shining light. Second, and more briefly, a surpassing power. A surpassing power. Verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The treasure here is the gospel. The, the clay jars that hold it are you and me. See, if the treasure were housed in something beautiful, like fine china, if it says, but we have, if it said, but we have this treasure in fine china, or in something not beautiful, but say powerful like iron, but we have this treasure in jars of iron, it would be so easy for our neighbors, for the watching world to conclude that the, any apparent surpassing power belongs to us. But we are not impressive containers, are we? We are not. We, we are not iron. We are not fine china. We are pots of dirt, brittle and plain. But if you're a Christian, you have something residing in you that is worth more than all the jewels beneath the earth. Everywhere you go, everywhere you go, you are transporting treasure transporting treasure, gospel treasure within. So no wonder the container, namely you, is under siege. Verses 8 and 9, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. I love the contrast Paul's painting here between circumstances and outcome. Talk about a stark contrast. Circumstances, like present life situations, what's going on, how you're doing, and final outcome. What are Paul's life circumstances according to verses 8 and 9? How's he doing? Well, he's hard-pressed, he's perplexed, he's persecuted, and he keeps getting struck down. 
But what's the outcome? He's not crushed, not driven to despair, not abandoned, not destroyed. Now, many of us read this and, and we, it feels, we feel warm fuzzies inside because we're, we're familiar with this, but this is not really what we want to read in our flesh, naturally, this is not what we want to read. What we want to read is, oh, if you come to Christ, if you reverse course and come to him, then you will be able to look at life and say, I am not hard-pressed. I am not perplexed. I am not persecuted. I am not struck down. Later in the letter, actually, Paul is going to beg God, beg him for a change of circumstances to remove this afflicting thorn. And the Lord of love is going to tell him, no, no, no. Brutal life circumstances, brothers and sisters, brutal life circumstances are normal for a believer in a fallen world. Brutal life circumstances are normal in a fallen world. Think about just, let's just take one of those little phrases before we move on. Persecuted, but not forsaken. You know what's contained there in those words, persecuted, but not forsaken? Two promises straight from Jesus. All men will hate you because of me. Persecuted. I will be with you to the very end of the age. Not forsaken. You will often feel alone, Jesus says. He promises it. You will often feel alone. But then he follows it up with saying, but you will never be alone. You will never be alone. When it feels like I've left, there I will be. That's why Charles Spurgeon could famously say, I have learned to kiss the wave that strikes me against the rock of ages. A surpassing power. Third and finally, a staggering future. Why is it that we can speak boldly about Jesus, our Lord? Yes, because God is sovereign, as we saw. But also, because our future is fixed. Our future is fixed, verse 14, because we know that he who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. If you're united to Jesus by faith, connected to him through faith, then everything that is true of him is now true of you. And that includes the guarantee that his past is your past, so stop living in the past because your past doesn't define you anymore. His does. His past is your past and his future is your future. So Paul concludes in verse 16, so we do not lose heart. I, I, that little word so there is significant. It means therefore, and what it means here is that verses 2 through 15 are why verse 1 was true. Remember, we saw in verse 1, we do not lose heart. And then from verses 2 to 15, he's been explaining why that is. So then he can circle back here in verse 16 and say, so, therefore, in light of everything I've said since verse 1, that's why we do not lose heart. Notice that the process of sanctification here in verse 16 and 17, that of growing more like Jesus, it occurs in painfully slow motion, doesn't it? 
slow motion. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, not instantaneously. Not in a week, not in a month, not in a year, not at a conference, not at a church service, not in a quiet time, day after day after day. Spiritual growth is incremental, and it often feels indiscernible. Maybe some of you have had this experience. When I was growing up, uh, there were some family members. I lived in Charlottesville, Virginia. They lived in Richmond, and we would always drive there for Thanksgiving. So I would see them once a year. And every time I walked through the door as a kid, they would say the same thing. They would say, my goodness, Matt, how much you've grown. And I would think, really? I didn't notice it this morning in the mirror. Just because you're unaware of how you've grown doesn't mean it hasn't happened. Just because you can't see growth doesn't mean it's not happening. And that's one reason why it's so important not to try to live this Christian life alone. You need others in your life to observe things, both pleasant and unpleasant, that you cannot see. Sanctification is a day-by-day, step-by-step marathon. It's not an impressive sprint. I don't know if some of you saw the clip from a few days ago, but uh, Usain Bolt, apparently, you know, he's in retirement, but there's, there's a clip of him in sweatpants and pumas in retirement running the NFL record 40-yard dash, just like last week. That is not your sanctification. It's not an impressive Usain Bolt sprint. As one of my buddies put it, uh, he said, you know, progressive sanctification is kind of like the Bible's get-rich-slow scheme. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And he who began a good work in you will, will, will be faithful to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Notice also that the pain you're enduring, friend, is not meaningless. It may feel that way. It's not. It's purposeful. Verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Have you ever thought about your pain as preparatory? for something. That, that's what it says. Your suffering is preparing you for something. It, it, it's, a, it's not just meaningful. I'm not merely up here saying, hey, your suffering's meaningful, though it is. I'm also saying it's an achievement. It, it, it's meaning it's achieving for you something over time, a real-time, ongoing achievement. Many of you have suffered immensely. Some of you are suffering immensely this morning. If you could pick two adjectives to describe your sorrow, your pain, your loss, your issues, if you could pick two adjectives to go public with, I guarantee you would not pick Paul's. He chooses light and momentary. Can you believe that? If it bothers you a little bit, that's okay. Just in the sense of the initial response, because that's, it doesn't feel light to you, does it? It doesn't feel momentary to you, does it? The audacity of the Apostle Paul to call what you've experienced light? 
But the reason he can say this is because he sees something on the horizon. He sees something on the horizon so much heavier and more permanent that it makes your present pain look small. That's how big the thing on the horizon is. It can make make even the biggest thing in your life right now, your pain, look small by comparison. And here's how it happens. If you want your pain to prepare you for and achieve for you an eternal weight of glory, then verse 18, look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, friends, are transient. They're passing. But the things that are unseen are eternal. They endure so much of success in the Christian life boils down to this. The ability to stare at the invisible. The ability to stare at what's invisible. And oh, how much there is for us to stare at, isn't there? No other worldview or philosophy or religion holds out a future like Christianity does. You may be thinking, wait, but I thought Christians were just waiting around to get evacuated out of this material world, to sit on clouds with chubby angels with harps in our hands. Not according to the Bible. You see, the ultimate hope of God's people, according to this book, is not evacuation, it's restoration the restoration and renewal of this material universe. Our shared future, Christians, our shared future is new bodies on a new earth. Cancer, gone. Broken relationships, gone. Wayward children, gone. Slander, gone. Injustice, gone. Life in verses 8 and 9, where we're living now. We are inhabiting verses 8 and 9. Affliction, confusion, persecution, getting struck down, gone. Brothers and sisters, Jesus said that we will inherit the earth. And on that new earth, we will not be merely stringing a harp on a cloud. We will be running and working, and laughing, and playing, and singing, and conversing, and delighting in the wonders of an endlessly good God. Oh, fix your eyes on the future. Stare at what is not yet visible. And above all, fix your eyes on your King and your Savior, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before Him For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 2,000 years ago, Paul didn't lose heart. Why? Because he wasn't worried about his message. He wasn't worried about his afflictions. And he wasn't worried about his end. And the same can be true of you this coming week. Fix your eyes on the shining light of the gospel, the surpassing power of your God, and the staggering future that awaits you. Because there is coming a day, mark it friends, there is coming a day when your struggles will feel as distant and therefore light 
as the first day of sixth grade. Don't lose heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for 2 Corinthians 4 and for the truths that it contains. Lord, some of my friends here this morning are feeling comfortable and are perhaps coddling sin and they, they need some spiritual smelling salts. They need to be shocked out of their slumber. Others, though, Lord, are deeply suffering and need your gentle touch. Lord, I pray that you would help them to look away from themselves to the coming day when, they're, when, when, when the fogged-up lens will give way to face-to-face vision. We praise you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace And not just that we know the facts of the gospel, but that we can delight in its glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-694. Four three five six. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.